Good morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome to those of you on campus, those of you watching online. Glad you're here. This is the day the Lord has made. We're thrilled you're with us. Uh, Beth, my wife and I just want to say thanks for this warm greeting that we've received the last couple of weeks as your new pastor. And of course, we've been, if, if you're real new to the church, of course, that's tongue in cheek. You know, we've been here for 40 years, but you got to have some kind of change of pace or change of perspective every 40 years or so. And so thanks for uh, everyone's uh, fun response to, to that. What I've been trying to do the last couple of weeks is imagining becoming the pastor here for the first time. This has kind of helped me to get a fresh look on things and perspective. And last week I, I talked about the need to rely on the Holy Spirit and to raise our expectations and to live an honorable life. And I want to build on that today with this uh, theme that I'm describing, No Other Gods. Um, here's my thesis today. My thesis is that I believe that the ideologies, the ideas, the concepts, the philosophies that are being bantered about on all the extremes of our society right now, these ideologies, these ideas, have become functionally de facto gods. They are actually replacing religion in our culture. In the first commandment, there's 10. The first one says, you shall have no other gods, no other gods before you, before me. And so that's the challenge. How can we live free from idolatry, even though it gets mixed in with Christianity sometimes? So here's my warning. I will literally offend every single one of you before the end of this message. You will be offended. Now, I've preached this twice this morning, and to, so far, no one's gotten up and left. So that's progress. That's good. So tighten your chin strap, cinch up your belt, and just hang in there with me, and I hope it will be meaningful to you. I've chosen as our text this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Corinth that had a lot of symptoms that we are experiencing in our culture and in the church today. And I think we can take some cues from this passage that will help us uh, answer the question, so what do we do in the midst of a culture like ours? And I hope it's a blessing to you. So 2 Corinthians 10, 1 to 5, our custom is to stand to honor the loving authority of God's word in our lives. Thank you for doing that as you're able. So here's the apostle speaking to the church at Corinth. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul who are timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, that's, that's a lot to take in, but we'll unpack it. So may God inspire us and instruct us through his word today. You may be seated. 
Now, remember my thesis today, my premise is that there are ideologies loose in our culture today that have become idols, de facto gods, that are distracting us from the true faith. Here's a photograph I want you to look at. This is an image from the Capitol riots on January the 6th. You'll notice there a flag that says, Jesus is my savior and Trump is my president. Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. Here's what we know that resulted from January 6th riots, that the peaceful transition of power was upset for the first time in the 244-year history of our country. And so the question I want to ask is, what are we to make of Christian symbols and Christian inferences and Christian language for an act of violence that was so blatantly unchristian? People rallying, breaking stuff, and hurting people. Now, some of you probably now are filled with some strange emotions. I'm stopping for a moment to, to check on you. All depending on the perspective you have on these things. Are you angry? Angry at them for doing it? Angry at, with me for bringing it up? How dare you say that that was unchristian? Maybe you feel con contempt. I, I'm so much better than folks who would do that, or you feel contempt for them. Or maybe you feel like I do, just sad. You know, just grief-stricken, just sorry that that sort of thing would happen. Maybe it causes you doubt or embarrassment. I may be speaking to someone today within the sound of my voice that your faith, as I described last week, is in the context of deconstruction. You're wondering if what you've been told is true. You're wondering if your faith is based on the truth. And so you're deconstructing it. And you may be a person now filled with doubt or embarrassed over our Christian identity. I mean, if that's what Christian looks like, then count me out. Forget it. I don't want to be part of that. So these are all valid feelings, of course. And Paul writes about those in the church who bring the truth into disrepute, which is what was happening in the Corinth church. A group of progressive liberal pastors in response to the January 6th riots issued a statement, and it said, and I quote, there is a version of American nationalism that is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity, and it is a heretical version of our faith. So now I know what I've just uh, reported may be offensive to some of you, but I'm trying to get you to think. I want you to think with me. The same could be said about the left as well. Recently saw an image. This was in the context of a, of a abortion rally. And one person was carrying a rather large cross on a pole, lifting it high, the cross, through this abortion rally. Another person had a flag, had a big red heart on it. Both symbols of love. This was at a rally celebrating the killing of pre-born children. Now think about that. The greatest genocide of our time is the killing of the unborn. The number in America is somewhere between 60 and 70 million since Roe v. Wade. 
70 million Americans have been aborted. Here's another photo, I'll put it on the screen. Here you see the colors of the LGBTQ community affixed to the front of a Protestant church, permanently affixed. Here's another photo. You see a rainbow-colored clerical stole being worn by a group of clergy persons. Perhaps you can't read the sign of the person in the middle that says I'm ordained in my particular denomination and I'm queer. You may know the history of the clerical stole or collar worn over the robe comes from our Anglican cousins and our Roman Catholic friends. By the way, I own a clerical robe and a stole. I have a white stole. It's red on the other side, so I wear it on occasion. I wear it on request. I've worn it in some weddings, you know, to be more formal. And just so you know, I look really good in a robe. (laughs) In fact, if I wore it a few times, you'd say, I like that. You look good in that robe. But symbolically, it's a visible sign to everyone that this is a person who set themselves apart, you know, a chosen different way of life. The collar and soul were traditionally white to symbol a holy way of life. We know that Catholic priests wear a collar or the, the stole to symbolize their separation and their celibacy. So it's very significant, very symbolic. So I ask you the question, what are we to make of that symbol, a rainbow-colored stole, of all things, now turned into a symbol that is clearly and obviously unbiblical and unchristian. Okay, what are you feeling now? Are you shocked? How dare you criticize the pro-abortion movement? Are you angry? Are you confused? If I were to flip the progressive pastor's statement, the liberal pastor's statement about what they said toward people on the right, and instead it goes like this, there's a version of American progressivism that is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity, and it is a heretical version of our faith. Now, just so you know, this message, this sermon today is not about politics. Politics is not my genre. It's not my lane. This isn't about that. This message is about certain ideologies that exist in our culture that have become a form of idolatry threatening the genuine Orthodox faith, threatening it. We live in an age of idolatry created by ideologies on both the right and the left. Now, if you'll permit me just to teach you just a little bit today about ideology. Ideologies have two things in common. One thing is when you take a part of the truth and you make it the whole truth. Take a part of it, make it the whole. Pretty much all ideologies start with the truth or a a good idea, but then they make that one thing the whole thing, and in doing so, distort the original version and it becomes a parody of itself. Let me give you an example. Another century ago, we saw in our world the Russian Revolution. This is what started out by a guy named Karl Marx and others as a critique of classism. There were folks in the culture who had and folks who had not. So we have the haves and the have-nots. And we want to do something. We want to, we want to create a vision of a society of equality and justice. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? 
This was the Russian Revolution. And Karl Marx and his associates fostered the Russian Revolution. And it ended up, this is not an opinion. This is not a political statement. This is a statistical fact. It ended up as the greatest genocide in human history. More people died in the 20th century. Tens of millions of people worldwide died as a result of this philosophical point, this physical, philosophical practice, than any time in human history. Utopia became dystopia. A world that we want to create with perfect equality and justice didn't work out under that system. Now, a century before that, we have our own country that started out as a revolution of liberty and we could argue, I would be happy to argue that our founding fathers and mothers established a constitution and the Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, post-Revolutionary War, that formed the greatest country in the history of the world. I personally believe that if you're born in the United States, you have won, you have won the human lottery. It's an incredible place of blessing opportunity. It doesn't matter who you are. I could argue that. But we have to keep our eyes wide open. We have to consider our history carefully, accurately. So what started out as a revolution of liberty actually for 400 years included the greatest expression of chattel slavery in human history. That's a fact. That's not good. And that has consequences to this day. So back to the two things that ideologies have in common. The first being when you take a part of the truth and make it the whole truth. You take a part of the story and make it the whole story. You take a part of the picture and make it the whole picture. Then you wind up producing things like Black Lives Matter or the 1619 Project or critical race theory. And on the, on the list of things go. Now, let me just remind us that human beings are a mixed bag. Everything from people who believe in Jesus and are staunch Christians on one hand, all the way to atheists on the other hand, and everybody in between, every one of us has been made in the image and likeness of God. That's a fact. And we are filled with latent goodness and wisdom and an impulse to love and be loved and to have authentic relationships. That's true. And all of us are fallen and broken, and hurt, and wounded, and bent. Every one of us. And that's also true. So regardless of our motivation, regardless of our worldview, without God, as it turns out, we humans ruin everything we touch. <laughs> it's because we're all affected, inflicted by a disease. The disease is called sin. And sooner or later, Without God's help, without God's sustaining grace, we all make a mess of it. That's who we are. So we, we all have the consequence of sin, not only in our own lives, but we see it all around us. So the second thing that's true of all ideologies is that when you take a good thing and you make it the ultimate. So you take a part of the truth, you make it the whole truth, and now you take a good thing and you make it the ultimate thing. 
That's when you take things like equality. Is that good? Of course it's good. Justice? Yeah, everybody wants it. Freedom? Wonderful. Individualism? Please. Politics? Nation state? These are all good things. But when they become the ultimate thing, listen to me, or they become, they become the, the, the primary thing, they can then become de facto gods at a functional level, taking over the place of the, of the one true God. So people putting their faith in and giving allegiance to some ideology in order to be safe or happy or right or in power, this always results in a disaster every time. And it's because God is not in his rightful place as our ultimate. You, you, you take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing. Now, now you ha- have a recipe for destruction. The common denominator in all ideologies is that they put humanity and its ways, moral reasoning and its autonomy from God at the center rather than having God at the ultimate place, the center. And so we are created to live in orbit around God, not anything less or anything else in orbit around us. Can, can, you, can you visualize that? It doesn't matter what you put in orbit around yourself. You can call it equality, call it justice, you can call it fairness, nationalism, you can call it Democrat, you can call it Republican, you can call it America first, reparations, individualism, whatever it is. When we orbit around God, that is the path to heaven. When anything else orbits around us, that is the path to destruction. Are you following this? So that ideologies now, if we put them in the wrong place, the ultimate place, the center place, as the most important, the highest thing, the highest value, the highest pursuit, the highest goal, and God is not there, we'll mess it up every time. So when you take a part of the truth and make it the whole, and when you take a good thing and make it the ultimate, this is, this is how you literally define idolatry. That's why God in the first command said, you shall have no other gods before me. Decades ago, Leslie Newbigin made this prediction. He said, as the West secularized, religion would not go away. Now listen to this prophetic edge on this statement. Religion would not go away. Rather, it would be transferred into politics. He warned of what he called the political religions. We have those in full force in America today. And while the ideologies of our day are new, new to our generation, new ideas, the temptation to mix the way of Jesus with the way of this world, those are ancient People have always been tempted to commingle Jesus with whatever else the world was teaching at the time that was popular, trendy. Let me give you an example. Moses went up on the mountain of Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. This is after the Exodus, the the nation of Israel, two or three million of these Israelites are on the desert floor, and Moses now is summoned by God to Mount Sinai. You all saw the movie, the Ten Commandments. They play it every spring. And here you have the mountain glowing and people, people watch it. And so Moses goes up on the mountain of Sinai and the Bible actually says that God, God actually produced the Ten Commandments by his own finger. 
inscribed by the finger of God. Moses literally carried down two stone tablets off of Mount Sinai. Here's the problem. It took him a while. He was gone for 40 days. So he's gone and he's up there and the people of Israel are going, okay, waiting for the leader to come back. And they wait and they wait and a couple of weeks go by, a few weeks go by and they say, well, he's not coming back. Well, maybe he just, he fell off a rock and he's dead. So we're on our own now. So, okay, we need a God, great. So now they, they fashioned this calf. They, they overlaid a calf image and called it Yahweh, holy cow. They make this golden calf in the wilderness and they call it Yahweh. So now we've got a God. And, and, and then they engage in what the Bible calls revelry. <laughs> when the Bible suggests that people are engaged in revelry, this means, this is the biblical version of Game of Thrones. Anything goes. And it's incredible, extreme sexual license. And so the Israelites lost their way. And by the, by the way, they, they, they all, they're doing all of these things, all this lascivious behavior, this revelry, this drunkenness, this, uh, you can, the imagination, and they're doing it before this God they call Yahweh, which means God is behind it all. And if God is behind it all, then we can do whatever the hell we want. Now, I use that in the theological sense, not the crass sense. As long as God approves, as long as God smiles on it, as long as God's blessing is there, we can do whatever the, we want. Do whatever we want. And this is still going on thousands of years later as Jesus is being co-opted by ideologies from both sides that have become rival religions and usually far from the gospel and often antichrist. The, the, the temptation for us, like ancient Israel, is to commingle, to blend together Jesus and all the other things that we believe in, in our culture, culturally, politically. Syncretism is the fancy term for it. So on the left, in modern America, it is the blending of Jesus and worship, and prayer, and the liturgies, and the sacraments, and the high and holy days, and the robes, and the stoles, and everything else with progressive sex ethics. Jesus plus progressive sex ethics. Jesus plus lesbian, gay. Jesus plus gay. Jesus plus bisexual. Jesus plus transgender. Jesus plus queer. It's all good in the name of, because God approves. I mean, we're wearing the stole. We're doing the liturgies. We got the golden calf. We call him Yahweh. We call him Jesus. And on the right in modern America, it is the blending of Jesus and worship and prayer and the sacraments and all the liturgies and the high holy days. And we've got, so we've got our Jesus in place and that combined with Western individualism and consumerism. So I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. Oh, yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, I know Jesus. And as an individual, I have no, I have no sense of responsibility to any particular group or to the community at large. And as a consumer, I have no particular commitment or loyalty to a God-appointed leader, spiritual leader, or a particular local church. I can go and come at my convenience. I attend 
or contribute or serve when it suits my individual needs. I shop around as a good consumer for the best programs or services that meets the needs of my family and my life. I pick church options just like I do fast food restaurants. I mean, you can bundle your cable channels. Why not do the same with my church affiliation? And it's Jesus with a twist of the world put in. So the question is, how do we follow Jesus faithfully in an age of nonstop ideological promotion and posturing that threatens to drag all of us either to the right or to the left? How do we do it? More and more, as you know, as you've heard me report, people are losing their faith over this. Last week, I talked about deconstruction that's happening. More and more people in our culture are losing a meaningful faith because of these issues. And the growing number of people who no longer affiliate with the church at all, questioning the things that they've been taught, questioning their worldview, questioning whether their faith is true and real. And so not only are people losing their faith over this, many people who are not losing their faith are losing their integrity. Now I'm talking to people in my audience. Now I'm talking to you online. I'm talking to us in the room. If you're not losing your faith, more and more people, Christian people, yeah, I love Jesus, are losing their integrity, losing their way. No longer found faithful and obedient to the clear mandates of God's will and ways in their life. So, so more and more this is happening. So I believe 2 Corinthians chapter 10 shows us a way forward for a time like this. If you have your outline, you can follow it there. But I want to give you three brief insights that we can gain from this text that will help us know what to do. So what do you do? Number one is we need to posture in humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. There's no hate. There's no contempt. There's no moral superiority coming from the Apostle Paul. Now, he's deeply at odds with the moral posture of some in the Corinthian church, but he approaches them with, with humility and gentleness. That's so helpful. That's, that's so good. He says, I appeal to you. He doesn't say, hey, look, I'm the God-ordained apostle here. You have to do what I say. No control, no manipulation, no coercion. He said, I appeal to you. Now, he's not agreeing with the way people are living. He said, look, when I come to you, I hope not to have to be bold toward you because some of you think that you can live by the standards of this world, that you can follow Jesus and follow the world at the same time. But, but as it turns out, you can't. It's not possible to do that. And so we know that the world are the norms and the social expectations and the practices and the values that are, that are set in the world around us. When the New Testament says uh, the ways of the world or the the systems of the world. This implies uh, a system of ideas and values and morals and practices and social norms in a culture that has been corrupted. So worldly systems, the, the, the way of the world in the New Testament implies all of these thoughts in a corrupt culture that are created by two sins. One sin is rebellion against God. Look, God, I know what you've said in the past, but I don't believe that's what you're saying today. I know what the traditions are. I know what the practices in the past are. I know what the creeds say. 
I know what the New Testament says, but I'm no longer adhering to those standards and I'm rebelling against your will and your way and your word. And as a result of that, I'm going to do whatever the, I want. That sin combined with the sin of redefining what good is and what evil is, what right and what wrong is. And so you have rebellion against God and a redefinition of what's right and what's wrong, which is a great summary statement of Genesis chapter 3. And you have the consequences of a culture now that turns its back on God's best plan and, and ideal for, for people and people doing whatever the, they want. So we posture ourselves in the midst of that, as Paul modeled for us, in humility and gentleness. In America, 2021, there's a leftist version of the world, and there's a right side version of the world, and there's also the church's version. <laughs> no matter which side we tend to lean, we all feel the gravitational pull toward one or the other. But Paul said, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So we don't, we don't play. We don't play by the world's rules. We don't, we don't get caught up in the world system. So, for example, we do not ever resort to violence. Ever. That's not the way. That's not the way. We don't troll on social media or virtue signal or reduce ourselves to name-calling or presume moral superiority or contempt for another person all of which are, are seen as virtuous behaviors in today's wacky culture. So as I mentioned last week, we talked, about, we talked about relying on the Holy Spirit and raising our expectations and living an honorable life. And so that leads me to this, to this second point in today's message. And I want to double down on that first point, which is we need to rely on the Spirit's power. Paul said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, they're not of the flesh. They're not, they're not physical power, earthly power. It's not about winning an argument or moral reasoning or an emotional appeal. We have divine power. It's the word dunamis. We get dynamite from this word for the pulling down of strongholds. Now, the word stronghold literally means a military fortification. So strengthening, something strengthened as strong as it can be. And these strongholds are fortified positions in the world. And they, they, they occur in the church. They occur in our lives individually. Strongholds develop. This is how they, they, they come about. First, there's a foothold, a lie we come to believe, an opinion that we form, a habit that we give into, a compromise we make a few times, a relationship we let ourselves into, an environment we are in on a regular basis. What starts as a foothold can oftentimes grow into a stronghold. This is the bastion of evil in your heart, your mind, your body, your community, your church, the nation. So let me ask you this question. If the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not of the flesh, but they're mighty through God, powerful through God, let me ask you this question. Why are our public universities the global media, the global economy, the governments of this world gripped by wrong thinking and godless conduct. How do you explain that? Why is the persecution of Christians reaching unprecedented levels? What is going on? Why are people screaming at each other on television 24-7 ad nauseum? 
And why has pornography overtaken our technology? What is happening to us? We are living in a day where the evil has become so strong that our best attempts will not move it. Therefore, we must turn to God, invest in prayer, and rely on the Spirit's power. That's where a amen goes in the sermon. Go ahead, try practice it. That's the truth. We need the Spirit's power. And so we posture in humility and gentleness, not some moral position, superior position, gentle and humble. We rely on the Spirit's power. And then lastly, thirdly, we remain obedient to Christ. Everyone say obedient. One more time, obedient. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Strongholds are arguments, thoughts, thought patterns, ideas. Strongholds are pretension, exalted things, lofty things, warped philosophies. We just call them ideologies. They're all around us all the time. So strongholds, remember, are not people. They are ideas. They're ideologies. They are animated, in my opinion, my worldview, by demonic power, and they are antichrist. They are against the knowledge of God and enslave us to the ideas of the enemy rather than the freedom of Christ. And so we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Notice for Paul, the battle for our soul, the soul of the church, the soul of the world is lost or won in the field of our minds. There's a war being waged, not between left and right, but between the kingdoms of light and the kingdom of darkness. So as followers of Jesus, we make war spiritually with the goal of making all of our life obedient to Christ, obedient to him. Obedience to Christ over the centuries in the church has meant something that a compound word that's been created for this purpose reflects. The word is orthodoxy. This is what obedient to Christ looks like for centuries. Orthodoxy. Or it's a compound word, ortho meaning right, doxy meaning belief, right belief. So there's a body of ideas of ethics, of practices that have been passed down from the teachings of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament for 2,000 years. We call it the orthodox faith, right belief, the, the belief handed down. This is a body of truth that is crystal clear. It is leading us to say, this is what the followers of Jesus believe, and this is how the followers of Jesus live. Do you hear that? This is what we believe. This is, this is the historic creeds uh, that were written 16, 17, 1800 years ago in response to heresy. These creeds have been embraced by the church now for all of these centuries. So we have the creeds, the historic creeds. We have the New Testament. We have the teachings of Jesus. This is our faith. This is what we believe. This is the orthodox faith. And then there's the practice, which the Bible outlines clearly to us in many, many categories of life, ethics of Christian living, in relationships, in business, in the use of our money, in our sexuality, the use of our body, and on and on. Now, you can push back and say, well, orthodox, the word orthodoxy is not in the scripture. Okay, it's not. It's not a, not a biblical word. But here's what it means. It means the way, capital W, the way. The biblical term for following Jesus is the way, the way of Jesus, capital W. In fact, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. So you're following this. And so let's, let's bring this in for a landing. I want to be crystal clear with you today. I don't want you to be confused 
about, about what I'm about to say. I don't, I don't want you to leave here wondering what we believe, what I believe about these things. And so in conclusion, to be clear, Union Chapel is an Orthodox church. We follow the way. We honor the apostolic faith once delivered to the saints. We recognize, celebrate, and believe the historic creeds of the church. And in all other matters of practice, relationships, money, sexuality, use of the body, etc., where the scripture is clear, we seek to follow and obey. And our mission is clear. We want to know Jesus, grow in relationship to Jesus, and go telling others about Jesus. We are a Jesus church. We find his life and teachings to be the most interesting, provocative, compelling, and inspiring in all of history. We are followers of Jesus. We love the Bible. We love prayer. And we love to get in groups and teams. And we love to serve. And we love caring for the least and the lost. We love churches. And we love giving birth to more of them. We love to plant them. We are followers of Jesus. And for us, Jesus is more than just a cool rabbi way ahead of his time in the first century Israel. He is more than a good teacher. He is more than a friend. He is more than a mentor, more than an interesting philosopher. For us, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the preexistent, co-eternal word of God. He is creator God. He is the firstborn of the resurrection, having conquered death, hell, and the grave. He is the one who will return and put the world to right by judging both the righteous and the wicked. He is the one before whom, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is who we believe. This is who we are. So we all have to pick what God we're going to serve. I pick Jesus. I pick him, his will and his ways. Could we think about these things? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today, which encourages us so much. Thank you for this insight and wisdom from the apostle. So Lord, help us to follow this example in humility and gentleness, not better than, not superior to, not anything, just humble and gentle. This is what we believe to be true. God, help us. Fill us then with your spirit, your power. Lord, it occurs to us that without your help, without your grace, things are heading in the wrong direction. It seems destruction is assured on the current path we're on. So, Lord, send your spirit, send your power. Cause light to shine in dark places. And, Lord, regardless of what happens, regardless of the circumstances, may we be found obedient to Christ, obedient to him, faithful to his call, faithful to his order, obedient to Christ. Lord, all these things will require your grace. We humbly pray for it now in Jesus' name.
And the people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?